Well, if you'd please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're continuing through our study of John's Gospel. You remember by now, I hope, the theme of the Gospel of John is very clear. That Jesus is God. And by believing in Him, we can have eternal life. John 6, which we studied very recently, we see the glory of Jesus being displayed in a more public setting. He feeds 5,000 men and their families, something like fifteen or 20,000 people with just two fish and five loaves of bread. This is a notable sign. It's the miracle that is in all four Gospels. So significant was this sign seen by His apostles and by those who followed Him. And remember that John tells us why the crowd was following him in the beginning of chapter 6. Verse 2 says, because they saw the signs he was doing. They saw that he was healing people. And Jesus wasn't surprised that they came with ulterior motives. Um, Jesus knew all men, we read in John chapter 1. He knew their hearts. He knew that they had not come to him. They had not followed him into the wilderness because they saw their great need of a Savior. But really, they wanted to be there for the show. And yet, in spite of these motives, what we see is that Jesus was tender and compassionate with them. He ensures that none went away hungry. He fed them to the fill. And these verses that follow after that event, they show that although the hour is getting late, His work is far from over on this day. This is a very eventful day in this this life of Jesus Christ. So I'll be reading John chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately... The boat was at the land to which they were going. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us in these Scriptures. We thank You that You have given us Your Holy Spirit that we might understand the significance of what we have read. And we pray that by the same Spirit that quickened us from the dead and gave us spiritual life, by the Holy Spirit, You might also encourage our souls, convict our hearts. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Knowing the sovereignty of God, knowing the power of God is critical 
to life. If you don't understand who God is and His power, then life seems uncertain. You feel like you really are up and down and up and down like a boat being tossed by the waves. We'll be talking about the specific trials that the, harsh, that the apostles faced that night. And in these, I want you to remember just a few things which we will circle back to again and again. All of our life is ordained by God for our good and His glory. Remember that Jesus is the one who sent them into the lake, Matthew tells us. Jesus sent them into the lake and ultimately into the storm. He didn't make any mistakes. This was His plan. Then we'll see that Jesus actually comes to them at just the right time. Not when they hoped He would, maybe, but at the right time. In His perfect timing, He came to them. And thirdly, that Jesus, by His mighty power, made them safe. He saved them. Jesus truly is our refuge in the storm. That's the title of the message. Our refuge in the storm. There are a few things that we see in this particular text that I think are so important for us. First, knowing that we have a Father in heaven and communing with the Father as Christ did is critical for us to navigate the storms of life. Communion with the Father. Secondly, we'll see that the dark storm was part of God's plan and the disciples were sent into that storm, but that Jesus saves. Our larger catechism, our shorter catechism, says something very similar. Indeed, it's part of our confession of faith. That God is, is ruling the universe in power. And part of this is called His providence. It's His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's pretty extensive. This actually gives us great comfort. Even in the most difficult things in life, we serve a God who rules. Nothing is uncertain. Nothing is accidental. Nothing happens apart from His plan. Some of you know that one of my favorite um, popular Christian people is named Johnny Erickson. Uh, she is now a paraplegic. Uh, she was born the same year my father was, 1949. She comes from a family that's very athletic. Very much a healthy family. Her dad was in the 1932 Olympics as a wrestler. Went on to some wrestling hall of fame. Um, so she was raised in this environment of, of activity and strength. In 1967, when she was only 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, misjudging the depth of the water, and fractured her spine between the fourth and fifth, fifth vertebrae and was immediately, in a moment, paralyzed from the shoulders down. Someone actually jumped into the water because she couldn't turn over and pulled her out, saved her life. And for the next two years, she spent recovering. As a, as a Christian, she was also wondering, why did this happen to me? What is the purpose of this particular Terrible tragedy. She was even suicidal, she writes in her autobiography. 
Well, now she has a clear understanding. She sees God's sovereignty clearly, as I hope you will today as well. She knows that because of this terrible tragedy, that her her influence has expanded far beyond anything that it ever would have been if she had just been a good athlete and grown up to be a mom or something in business. She has a radio program that's transmitted all over the world every day. She's met presidents. She's written books. She's advocated for handicapped people and issues. And she knows that if it were not for that terrible tragedy, that none of this would have ever happened. So she sees God's providential care in all of her life. Sometimes we are are able to see that same kind of care in our lives. We see something terrible that happens and we see God working it for good. But it's not up to us to figure those things out. Sometimes we don't know why things happen and we'll never know exactly what is in the mind of God. But what we do know is that He cares for us us much better than we could ever care for ourselves. Amen? He cares for us way better than we could do ourselves. His ways and His plans are, are much, much higher than ours. Much better than ours. We don't like to admit that, but when things happen, we need to trust God because His plan is good. He doesn't do bad plans, brothers and sisters. He does good plans. He doesn't do mistakes. He does perfection. Everything He does is good. That doesn't mean there's not pain and sorrow and suffering and sin in the world. And even over this, God is sovereign. Well, important to our understanding of God's sovereignty is understanding the relationship that we have with God. And Jesus understood this well. And that's why I want to start with just looking at Jesus' own life, His prayer life, and His communion with the Father. After feeding the 5,000, something, some event seems to drive Him to an all-night time of prayer. All night He prayed. Well, what was that? In verse 15, we might see part of it. He perceived then that they were about to come and take Him by force and make Him king. He had just fed these fifteen or 20,000 people. And they are so enthralled with this miracle that they decide, It's remember just before the Passover, it seems that their plan might be to make Him king, to, to walk to Jerusalem as an army, if you will, by force to make Him king. And this word perceiving is a word that John often uses. You've already seen it. Uh, in Greek, it's gnosko, which means it's a, a personal knowledge of someone or something. It's the same word that John uses in John chapter 2, that Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. He knew them. He knew what was in a man, John tells us. It's the same word that knowing then what they were going to do, that they were going to take Him by force. Well, this point, of course, is is, is a, a theme of John. It points straight to the deity of Jesus. He is God. He is God. He was on the earth as God, the God-man. And He knew exactly what they were going to do. It points to His deity. He perceived because He's God. There's nothing apart from His knowledge. So He knew they were going to take Him by force and make Him king. It's a kingship that... uh, Well, first of all, it's a huge misunderstanding of the Jewish people, which we see clearly now having seen the whole Gospel 
plan laid out for us in the Scriptures, but at the time they certainly didn't see it. They wanted Him to be an earthly king, didn't they? They wanted Him to, to remove the yoke of the Roman Empire from them. They were going to use force to, to take Him and make Him a king. But Jesus didn't come at that time to rule as an earthly king to sit on a throne somewhere to conquer the Romans or to make Israel a mighty power again. He came to preach good news to the poor. Repentance and faith in Himself. He preached comfort to the downcast and sight to the blind. And then He applied those covenant blessings that were promised all through the Old Testament Scriptures to His own people and to us by His own blood. I think it makes me remember that how often do we desire Jesus to do something for our earthly or temporal lifting up rather than thinking of the spiritual needs? Uh, most recently, I, I've struggled through this well over the past year. I think God has given me some wisdom, but seeing the, the southern border just wide open and migrants pouring through the border and thinking, Lord, Lord, what is happening? It's going to destroy our economy and all of these things that come to your mind. Close the border, Lord. Do that thing. Build that wall. Preserve our country. It's, it's trying to make an earthly solution, isn't it, to what could be a, a spiritual problem. And all of our problems, of course, ultimately are spiritual. What's the higher reality? These people need the Gospel. They're coming primarily from Catholic or Chinese or whatever country, but not Christian countries. They need the Gospel. Could it be that there's a spiritual solution that's much, much higher than anything that, that we could see with our own eyes? Yet that's the same problem that the Jews had. They wanted Jesus to be made a king to solve some earthly problem. And Jesus actually came to solve a much bigger problem. And that's the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But we also know that no earthly person could ever make Jesus king because God had already crowned Him king. Psalm 2 tells us that He was installed by God Himself. And we believe that when Jesus ascended back to the throne of God after His resurrection, that this was kind of His coronation service, although He had always been God. He was coronated in, in some way, or at least it feels that way, by the Father Himself. He was made glorious in holiness and seen, as John in chapter 14 and 15 tells us, seen in all of His glory. This is part of Jesus' prayer. Someday you would see me in my glory. Well, we know more than that as well that Matthew and Luke tell us that He was born a king. He's already a king. There's no man who could make Him a king. So these people are, are mistaken, and yet they want to come and by force make Him a king. They didn't see the Gospel. They didn't see that their biggest need was their sin in light of a holy God. And the holiness of God was what would would bear down upon them. They wanted to remove the wrath of the Roman Empire, but what they failed to see was that the wrath of God was upon them. And on all men apart from Christ, they needed a Savior from their sin. So what does Jesus do? Well, this is the point, isn't it? There's a, a huge issue in His life. 
He sees these, this vast multitude of people that want to force Him to do something. And He withdraws to a mountain by Himself. In Matthew 14, we're told that after He dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. He was praying. The crowds were all around and He dismisses them. They all still needed to see Him. They all needed something from Him. And He prays. He wasn't going to submit to their carnal desire to make Him an earthly king. He was going to do what He often did, and that's commune with His Father. He's going to pray. He left the multitudes of people as He often did. He left His disciples as He often did. His family. We read in, in Luke that often He went off by Himself. All by Himself. Into a desolate place. To pray privately. To commune with His Father in heaven. It seems there was nothing more important in His life. Let me give you just a few examples. Mark 1.35 Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place. And there He prayed. Do you see the sacrifice that He makes? It, it should shake us as well. The alarm goes off and you, you struggle just to roll out of bed on time. Jesus got up early. So important to Him was His communion with the Father. Luke 5.15 He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That's verse 16. He went out to, to lonely places, to desolate places. In other words, He didn't want distractions. There's a lesson there too, isn't there? That's why in days of old, there would be in most houses, most farmhouses, a closet that was reserved for prayer. A desolate place in your own home. A place of private prayer. In Luke 6, verse 12, we see that He went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. All night He prayed. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, the biggest trial of His life was about to begin. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly. And His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And verse 39 says, going to that place to pray was His custom. He went there to pray often. And in the greatest hour of His need, He prayed to the Father. What's precious to us, and we will come to it in months from now, in John 17, we hear an entire prayer of Jesus. We see the context of His prayer. We see the words that He prays. We see the infinite emphasis. And you can even sense a tone in His prayer. What a unique privilege. What a unique insight. Well, of course, the application is that we should pray. If Jesus, the Son of God, would pray and devote such time and energy and sacrifice to pray, to go to His heavenly Father in prayer, whom He had known for eternity, how much more should we pray? The Word and prayer are the means by which we commune with God. If you're not reading your Scriptures, if you're not praying, you're not communing with God. Can you imagine a relationship that's important to you where you never talked to the person? Oh, I love my wife. Well, when's the last time you talked to her? Oh, it's about once a week. Ten minutes or so. That's not going to last, is it? As we pray, our relationship with God grows and deepens. He taught us how to pray. 
He exampled prayer to us. He included the disciples in corporate prayer. He wanted them to pray often, it seems. He taught them literally how to pray with the Lord's Prayer. So we see in light of the rest of the Scriptures how important prayer is for the life of a Christian. You know, one of the things I talk to each one of you about when I come to your home is, tell me about your prayer life. I want to hear how you're praying. And you all answer honestly, and you answer the same way that I do. Prayer is difficult. I'm trying to do it, but it's, it's hard. I want to do more, but it's, it's difficult. And yet the Word of God and prayer should be for the everyday Christian, for the normal Christian. It's, it's, it's the nexus of our lives. Robert Rayburn calls prayer the practice of the Christian life at every turn. So if you are not praying regularly, if you have no desire to pray, you actually might not be a Christian. The Holy Spirit will draw you to prayer. He will cause you to desire that anyway. We should be so frequently communing with the Father in prayer that Paul even tells us to pray without ceasing. So how? How do we do that? Well, we've talked about some of Jesus' examples for us already. I would say the first thing that you should do if you want to pray more and pray more effectively and more, more heartfelt prayers is to pray. Pray for God's help. It's instructive to read the Puritans as they talk through their prayer lives. These are some of the most godly men that the world has ever produced, and women. And when you read their diaries, what do you see? When you read their letters to each other, what do you see? They lament the weakness and the feebleness of their prayers. So you're not alone if you feel that way. Pray for help. I would say, number one, use the Word of God as you pray. Use the Lord's Prayer as a guide for prayer. Read the great prayers of Scripture. Read Daniel's prayer. Read Hannah's prayer. Read Mary's prayer. David's prayers. All the book of the Psalms is our prayer book, in a sense. Indeed, the whole Bible is instructed for our prayers, so use the Word of God to guide you in your prayers. Secondly, I would say remember the relationship. You're not, you're not doing some mechanical thing. It's not a 1 plus 1 equals 2 kind of formula. What you're doing is praying to your Father. Your Father in Heaven. You're communing with your Heavenly Father. It's a relationship with a holy God. You're a child of the Father. And He's not unwilling to hear you. He's not unwilling to answer you. He, he desires to hear your prayers. He's your Father. What child when seeing, or what father when seeing a child running up to him doesn't just hold out his arms and lift up the child? Say, what is it you need? You say, well, you're making too much of that illustration. And I don't think I am because Jesus uses the exact same illustration. He says that praying is like a child coming to a father and asking him for things. Remember the relationship. Thirdly, also remember that the one you're praying to is infinitely wise and powerful. He knows all things. He holds all things together. He can do all things. He's got the plan. And yet in His providence, He's ordained that He would use your prayers to accomplish His work. He may at times hear our finite human requests for His good purposes and just say no. Or He might seem not to even answer. What's happening there? Well, He's God. 
Have your children ever come to you and asked you for something and you know that it's not in their best interest and you say no? I was thinking of a time when I actually didn't even answer my child. My kids growing up on a flight line, we were always around jets, always around F-15s. They're very loud. Someone's last flight in the jet, all the families go out to the flight line and you watch the person land and taxi back and then you celebrate with them. It's their last flight. It's a wonderful day. So you can imagine me with all my five kids and they all have these, we call them Mickey Mouse ears, these big headphone things that protect their hearing and it's just deafening loud. So we're out there with the kids and I think it was Emmy who looked up as one of the jets came in and parked and it was still running and you could see the intakes just sucking in everything. She said, Daddy, I want to go and see that. I want to go look at that closer. And I can tell what she was saying. I saw her pointing and she was kind of pulling. But I knew that she would get sucked down that intake and it would kill her. That's not good. It was a dangerous place. The sound gets louder as you get closer. It could damage your hearing. But I couldn't communicate with her, so I just held on to her hand. And I kind of ignored her. I just looked at her and, and said no. And she saw my face, and she trusted me. She trusted my wisdom. She trusted my love. And she trusted my grip on her hand. Sometimes when God seems to be not answering to us, He's just holding on and He's saying, just wait. Just wait. When you're praying, continue to pray. You feel like He's not answering? Continue to pray. He's a good God. And He loves to hear the prayers of His children. He loves the prayers of His children. He delights to answer the prayers of His children. Fourthly, I would say that remember that this is part of our spiritual combat. I look at much of the Christian life through the lens of combat. That's my training. But it's actually the way Paul looks at the Christian life. And Jesus also, we could argue, looks at life through that lens as well. When Jesus was confronted with evil or the fallen world, He often went to pray. It was part of His kit, if you will. His weaponry. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, after describing our armor, remember this is, is Paul's description of the, the Christian's armor, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, etc. After describing all of that, you know what Paul says? Pray in the Spirit at all times, with all prayer and supplication. This is actually the, the application of, of, of knowing that you are on duty. You pray. And praying in the Spirit isn't talking about some charismatic experience. It's talking about praying according to God's will. Being enlivened by the Spirit of God in you. According to the Word of God. It's, it's similar to praying in the name of Jesus according to all of His purpose. It's a humble reliance on the Holy Spirit for wisdom. The great Scottish preacher Alexander White said of prayer, if prayer is anything at all, it is everything. And that is exactly what the whole Word of God says about prayer. It is everything, absolutely everything. Well, Jesus thought so, and you should as well. Rededicate yourself today to prayer. Never Stop walking up to the batter's box of prayer and swinging your bat. Don't ever throw the bat down in frustration and walk away. Don't ever break the bat over your knee like Sammy Sosa used to do. Walk up to that plate every day and pray. Try to pray. So if God wants us to pray so much, I think the natural question is, then why is it so hard? 
Why is it so hard for us? Well, I think part of the obvious problem is that you don't really think it's important. If you did, you would do it. My grandma used to say, you guys know this. Everyone does what they want to. If you really thought it was important, you would do it. I remember my children, I sometimes would struggle getting them out of bed in the morning. Not all the time, they were good, but struggling to get some of them out of bed. But one time we had a camping trip planned, and I said, kids, we're waking up at 4.30. You know that every child was on my doorstep at 4.30, ready to go. What had changed? They really wanted to go on this trip. If you wanted to pray, you would do it. Well, why don't you do it? Well, you really don't know who God is. I mean, imagine some, again, I'm a historian, so I I think through the great men and and women of, of history, and I think, I wish I could talk to this person. Like, what if I could talk to Julius Caesar or George Washington or Winston Churchill? or Nebuchadnezzar, or some great ruler, or someone who did something, of course, Jesus. What if I could, if I could talk to this, this historical figure? If, if they were going to be at my, at my house at a certain time, do you think I would be ready? I would. I would have the door open. I'd be waiting. I would have prepared the house to receive them, and I would talk to them. But these are just men. You see, the Holy God invites us to talk to Him as well. And yet we act like He's nothing. I remember Dr. Sproul saying when someone asked him, hey, before the meal, why don't you offer a little prayer? You know his response. A little prayer? A little prayer? It's not possible to offer a little prayer to the Almighty God. Some of you may not even think that God really cares what you pray about. You see, you don't understand who He is. You don't understand His love for you. You don't think that He can actually help you. And you really don't think He cares. So, in light of all that, of course, it's not too critical to pray. What's the solution? It's look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Read Romans chapter 8. You see that Jesus is mediating our prayers. The Holy Spirit is groaning with our prayers. In other words, there's no reason not to pray and every reason to pray because you want the Almighty God involved in whatever that issue is. Jesus went to His Father to pray. He wanted to commune with God in prayer. Pray like Daniel. Pray every morning, noon, and night. Don't give up, but look to Jesus and ask Him to help you pray. Okay, that's a long discussion on the first point. Jesus teaches us to pray. In difficult times, pray. We should also pray. But while He was praying up on the mountain, something was happening out there. A huge storm had risen up to oppose His own disciples. This is the second point, that Jesus actually sent them into a storm. Look at verse 16. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across to Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Matthew 14, the parallel account of this this event, tells us that Jesus sent them out ahead of Him. It was getting late. It was getting dark. We know that from the passage as well. It's nighttime. A.W. Pink, like many theologians and pastors, 
have noted that this describes the conditions through which we also must walk as individual Christians on the earth, and really the church, as we pass toward our journey in the home above. It's a picture of our lives in this dark and broken world in many ways. And we note that it was dark. It was dark. That's what John says. And remember, there's no throwaway Scriptures. There's no, no phrase that's just accidentally there. John wants us to know it's dark. Well, for John, as we've seen already in his Gospel, darkness is often equated with evil. And that's kind of a, one of the things that you should note as you read through the Gospel of John. He uses light and darkness often. Even the prologue of his Gospel. He's looking back as he says Jesus was there in creation to the time when Jesus, God, said, let there be light in the very beginning and brought light into the darkness. In John chapter 1, we read that in Him was life and that life was the light of men. Jesus was the light of men. And He says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Meaning the, the evil and wickedness in the world. Remember He tells Nicodemus in John 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 8, He tells us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So what was the darkness that we see in this particular day? Well, there's the actual darkness of night. But the people had almost just committed what could have been the very greatest of evils. Do you remember Jesus' response to Peter? When Peter tells him, you cannot go to Jerusalem and be crucified. I will not let this happen. Jesus surprises all of us. And He says, get thee behind me, Satan. See, it was the greatest of evil to hinder him from his work, his spiritual work to go and to be crucified on a cross. And these people had tried to derail the crucifixion of Jesus, maybe unknowingly, which would be the key to their own salvation and to the salvation of the whole world. This was darkness indeed. It reminds us of Jesus being tempted by Satan. If you climb up to the top of the, the temple and you look down and He says, throw yourself down, or He shows you all the kingdoms of the world, all of those temptations were threats to our, our, our wonderful plan of salvation seen in Christ. It's not a worldly problem that Jesus came to solve. It's the biggest problem of all time. And that darkness had just shown itself as they were going to take Him by force. So He's praying. And He sends His disciples out and it's dark outside. And verse 18 says, the sea became rough. Because a strong wind was blowing. Now, remember something here. These men had grown up, most of them, on that sea their whole lives. A number of them were fishermen, and they had lived on the sea, fishing that very water. These were seasoned fishermen. They knew the water. I think they would not have gone out into the water at night in the dark unless the seas were good. They're smart men. And yet as soon as they got out into the water, it would seem that the winds just whipped up and created a monstrous storm. The Sea of Galilee, 
uh, for information is still like that. It's very, very low. It's below sea level, uh, like the, the Dead Sea. It's in a valley, and the winds would whip down from the north, down the Jordan River Valley, right onto the Sea of Galilee, and or whip up from the south, or whip over the mountains into the sea. It's still a very volatile place. It's one of the most dangerous places to be in a boat. Even today, even at night, they went out into these dangerous waters. And they were sent by Christ. He wasn't surprised by the storm, although they certainly were. And they had begun rowing. They wanted to fix this thing. They, they naturally wanted to save their lives and they're rowing for three or four miles. I remember with our children, we had this plan to row down this river. We could have rowed up the river and then back down, but I thought, no, we'll just go down the river. It's pretty down there. Big mistake. Went for like an hour that way, and then I started rowing back this way, and it took about three or four hours, and I was exhausted. Going against the current. These men were rowing hard for probably eight hours. They went out when it got dark. Jesus comes to them about 4 a.m. This is a long time to be rowing. If you've ever rowed for more than 10 or 15 minutes, you know that it's difficult. And Jesus had not yet come to them, we read. He had not yet come to them. He waited. Why? Why does He wait to answer our prayers? Why doesn't He come right when we want Him to? Is it because Jesus hated the disciples? Or because He was angry with them? Or He's just being cruel or negligent in His care? Of course not. His timing and hardship is perfect. Always. It's not our timing. Rarely is it ever our timing. But it's perfect. It's without error. And it's always achieving a perfect result. He took eight hours to come to them. Often our problems seem to come and go on for much, much longer than we would like. But we need, like we read in Psalm 46, to be still and know that He is God. We need to trust the timing of God. Brother and sister, today, if you are in a storm in your life, trust God. Trust God. He hasn't forgotten you. He's with you. And ultimately, we will learn what Jesus taught His disciples. That Jesus actually saves. He comes to His people. We see what's written next, that they saw Jesus walking on the water toward Him. At just the right time, He came to them. And He was walking on the water. They were about three miles out into the sea. That's a long walk after a long day, and Jesus is walking to them on the water. Another unmistakable display of divine power. This is Almighty God walking on the water. Probably, not probably, certainly not even hard for God, for Jesus. And I want you to think through this with me. Certainly it is a miracle. But why did it happen? Why is it a miracle? The law of gravity, for instance, if you're studying the law of gravity in school, kids, you can back me up on this. I haven't studied the laws of gravity in a long time. But I think that when you drop something, it goes to the ground, doesn't it? It's the law of gravity. It always happens. Unless 
there is a superior force that keeps it from happening. For instance, you can get a very large, powerful magnet and you can lift up something off of the ground that's heavier than air. Why is that? Because the magnetic force was greater on that object than gravity was. Planes can fly. They can defy gravity because of the lift generated by the wings. The air flowing over the wings is a superior force to the force of gravity. Jesus walked on the water because He is a superior force to the laws of gravity, to the laws of nature, to any law. He created every law of nature. And He's free to break them at any time. For these, there aren't, like, there's no law for Him of nature because they're all His laws. He made them for us. These aren't laws to Him at all. He does things that no other man can do. And He's more than just a man. He's the incarnate God-man, the Son of God. And the disciples saw it. And what's their response? They're afraid. They're afraid. You know, in the Scriptures, we see indicatives and imperatives. We've been learning this for years now. Indicatives are just statements of what facts are. And imperatives are instructions for us to do something. Jesus gives an indicative, indicative and an imperative in verse 20. Look at that with me. He says to them, It is I, that's the indicative, and that's actually ego eimi, which is how the Greeks translated the Hebrew in the Septuagint, I am. Ego eimi. It is I. Do not be afraid. The imperative. Do not be afraid. It's the most frequent command in all of Scripture. The most frequent imperative in all of the Bible. Someone counted them up. I believe it's 365 times that we see in Scripture, do not be afraid. Which is in, it, in itself interesting, isn't it? Could it be that God wants us to navigate the stormy seas of life, to use this metaphor, with the knowledge that we should not be afraid every day? Of course, this is true. We shouldn't be afraid. But Jesus tells them immediately not to be afraid. He had come to save them. He had come to protect them. He had come in compassion for them. And we see... Two more miracles that seem to occur immediately after they let him into the boat. One, immediately the boat was to the land at which they were going. Was this a miracle? Maybe not. Maybe it's just a, a way of writing it. But I believe that it's possible that as soon as he got in the boat, they're right there at the shore where they, where they mean to go, to Capernaum. They travel three miles in a second. But Matthew tells us that when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. This mighty storm that had been blowing all night, as soon as he gets into the boat, whoosh, stillness. It ceased. He had done this in Mark chapter 4 already, a different event. A great windstorm arose on the same sea. Waves were breaking into the boat. They thought they were going to die, and Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up and they say, Don't you care? We're going to die. And he says, Peace. Shalom. Be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. And they said, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey them? Indeed, that's our question as well. Who is this man? He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He walked on the water. He stilled this storm. Potentially made this boat travel lightning speed to the other shore. What is our response? 
Well, I like how Matthew 14 concludes this particular account, or his particular account of this event. Matthew 14, 33, it says, And those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. In that moment, they realized they were in the presence of God. This wasn't just another guy. This wasn't just a rabbi. They were in the presence of Almighty God. So let me conclude by just summarizing for your life a few of the truths that we see in the Scripture. Number one, Jesus is sovereign. He's the sovereign God. He's sovereign over all life. He's sovereign over the blessings of life as we see in the feeding of the 5,000. And He's sovereign over the trials and the hardships of life. Notice He sent them into the storm. He knew exactly what He was doing. There's no surprise for the Christian when something happens. If it's a long-standing issue or if it's a short thing, there's no surprise to God. There's no such act in the Christian's life. Nothing that happens that's an accident. There's no unfortunate situations. There's no terrible tragedies. Random acts of terror. There's only God and His providence. That's all. And I know that some of you are in terrible hardships right now. You feel like Jesus has not come to you yet. You're in the boat struggling at the oars, trying not to die. Maybe suffering with the death of a loved one. The sickness and the pain and it sometimes seems unbearable or tenacious and it's just on and on day after day. Or depression that makes you unable to get out of bed or even want to breathe at times. Or relationships that are so broken and hopeless that you feel like the darkness has encompassed you. And forward movement is impossible. Some of you have wayward children that are so prideful and disrespectful you wonder if they've ever loved you or ever loved God. You might be facing financial pressures that seem like Mount Everest in front of you and you'll never get out from under it. Or just doubt. Doubt God and His goodness. I'm here to remind you that God is sovereign over every hardship. He has ordered this trial in your life for His glory. And He's good. He doesn't mean ill. He means good. All the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. There's no random. His ways are higher than your ways. There's not a single atom in all the universe over which He doesn't cry out, mine. This is mine, including you and your life. So be confident in the wisdom and power of your loving Father and wait for the Lord. Wait for Him. Be still. Why? Because He is near. This is the last thing I want to say. He's near to you. Yes, you might have been sent into a storm, but He is near. He's coming. Pray to Him. Keep your eyes on our shepherd. Our shepherd doesn't run. He's a good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. God is with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have shown us in your word your power, your greatness, your tender care. And we thank you most of all that we can come to You in prayer in every situation in life, knowing that You will rescue Your people. It may not be what we want. It may not be the timing that we want. But it will always be good and right. Because You don't do anything that is not good. 
So much do you love and care for your people that you call us your own children. So Father, we pray that you would comfort our souls and encourage us to always pray, morning, noon, and night, to always lift up our prayers to you. Confident that you and your sovereignty and your good providence will help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and sing our closing hymn, number 94.